Hello, and welcome to Six Figure Authors, the show that helps you take your writing career to the next level. I'm Lindsay Baroker, and I'm here with my two co-hosts. I'm Andrea Pearson. And I'm Joe Lalo. And our guest for today is Joe Solari, different Joe, an author, entrepreneur, and consultant. He graduated, he graduated with a BFA from the School of the Art Institute and an MBA from Chicago Booth School of Business. He has been an owner, investor, partner, and operator of numerous businesses. And he is the author of Should I Incorporate? Direct Sales Unleashed. And his most recent book, Advantage, Harnessing Cumulative Advantage in the Winner-Takes-All Publishing Market. You might be able to guess, but we are going to ask him some questions on taxes, retirement accounts, business, or how to incorporate and when you should, as well as some good stuff from his latest book on the cumulative advantage that will be in the second half. So if you've already got all your business stuff squared away and want to skip ahead, we will forget. We will let you, but hopefully we'll have lots of good information here for you. Um, hey, Joe, <laughs> welcome to the show. How are you? Good to I'm see you all. It. Yeah. And if from this point forward, if you just want to call me Solari, so we don't have any issues with the Joe thing, I'm okay with that. I will not get upset. All right. I, I hate for Joe Lalo to start <laughs> trying to answer your questions on business, corp, you know, forming a corporation, because I know he's really into that. Um, but we mentioned your degrees. So, but what is your background and why did you get involved in helping authors with the business side of things? Um, so my background is focused really on um, small business ownership. I've been a small business business owner my whole life. I started in a completely different field. I was in water treatment and that was in oil and gas. I had at this point started five different businesses from bootstrapping them through raising uh, public and private money. We raised uh, 21 million bucks in 18 months in the last business. And when I got done with all of that crazy business stuff, I uh, decided I was going to write a book. And like most nonfiction authors, I thought, well, well I'm going to write all this brilliant stuff and people are going to pick it up and it'll be a bestseller. And uh, that didn't happen. What did happen, though, was a small group of authors uh, not only picked up my book, but they actually reached out to me. And um, over time, they asked me to help them more and more because... I think what was interesting about that first book was it was kind of focused focused on creatives and um, how a creative can take their uh, intellectual property and 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 make value and get paid for that. And but it was also practical. So I think it really hit home for a lot of authors that were, you know, getting started in this indie movement and after um, really turning this into a business. Where the real moment for me of change was the first 20 books to 50K conference. I was asked to speak there. And that's where not only was my eyes open to how much uh, authors were making, the, the real problems some of these authors were facing, but it was an opportunity for me to have a few clients say, hey, can you help me with the strategic stuff? But I also need bookkeeping help. And uh, I said, well, you know, I got... I don't really do the bookkeeping, but I got a guy. So, well, it's actually a gal. It's this uh, an old partner of mine. So we pulled together this business to help hire net worth authors and then decided we needed to help people learn our system that were earlier in their career. I think the crazy thing about your question that when, <laughs> why... <laughs> 
I don't know why. Um, other than I think authors are facing uh, a time in their life where this is really a golden age of content creation. And to be able to get a front seat and see how folks like you are taking the voices in your head and the stories in your heart and turning them into things that other people are willing to pay for. I really do believe we're at this point where, you know, folks that are listening to this podcast have the opportunity to create you know, generational wealth and IP that's going to be around for forever. Awesome. Yeah, that's, I'm sure that's where I first encountered you is at the 20 books conference. And it is kind of crazy with this self-publishing movement in this last 10 years, all of a sudden authors can make six figures. Like it's still rare and hard work and not everybody gets there, but, and then you get there and you're like, holy moly, like I know Michael Anderle just blew up right away. And I think the first discussion we ever had, he was like, Hey, do you know what I'm supposed to do with my taxes? <laughs> because I'm making all this money. I was like, well, I'm probably get an accountant, buddy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And I, I think that's the thing is, um, you know, one of the ironies is, is you hear a lot about, well, you know, small business is the backbone of the country and uh, small business employs more people. And the reality is, is that most of the small businesses only employ the owner, right? Um, but there's not a lot of resources for small business. Like I went to a real fancy business school. It's one of the best in the world but they didn't teach you how to do the basic stuff, stuff of running a business, right? They'll teach you how to pitch, how to go get money in Silicon Valley. They'll teach you all that stuff, but they don't teach about how to deal with um, what do I need to do to plan for my own retirement? What do I need to do to protect my intellectual property? What do I need to do to make sure that I don't get these nasty IRS letters? Like real simple stuff that can scare the hell out of you. Right. I don't think I've seen any authors yet pitching on Shark Tank or trying to get venture capital or anything. Maybe they will come one day. Um, but I'll tell you so. <laughs> so a question for those folks that maybe they're making a couple thousand a month now or, and they're starting to wonder, would it make sense to shift from being a sole proprietor or to starting an LLC or whatever entity you recommend? So at what point should authors start looking into that? Because I know I waited a long time because I didn't want to have to deal with other people. I was like, I got TurboTax. I'll just be self-employed. It's fine. It's easy. But yeah, you end up paying a lot more in taxes that way. Absolutely. So I, I came to this answer after spending time in the community and understanding how things work. And the, the real basis of my answer is, is that Besides the fact that you're starting a business that is about your dream of writing a book, if, you're, if your real dream is, is that you're going to do this full-time as a career, it means decades of doing this, it's lost on most people that this is also a startup business. And startup businesses are really risky. And when you do a startup business, one of the most important things you can do is utilize your cash as best as possible, right? So the... I'll go to conferences and I'll go to, I'll get calls and people contact me. Like I've, I'm, I haven't written my book yet, but I want to set up a company. And it's like, no, 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 no. That like you giving $150 to your state to set up a company and have a publishing name, they're not going to help you sell a book. That 150 bucks can go to buying a cover and paying an editor, which is going to get you a product that people will buy and figure out your business um, along the way 
you know, you have to have a product to know if this business is going to take off. So I'm always focused on that. The money that you do have needs to be going into what makes the business grow the fastest, which is usually the product. A good rule of thumb is when you get to about $10,000 of profit. So that's not top line growth, but top line growth, less your expenses. You're probably in a spot where if you do set up a company, you're going to see some results in tax savings. Um, what you need to understand is, is that setting up a company like an LLC in any state doesn't change your tax uh, profile at all, right? It creates a separate legal entity, which has some, some real benefits to it, which we can talk about if you want to. But that entity on its own is treated exactly the same as you uh, as a sole proprietor. So the taxes are the same. Um, you can do it on your own tax return um, if it's a single member uh, LLC. But if you take that LLC and what we do with our clients is we get them to elect to have it treated as an S corporation, which is a form you fill out with the IRS. Um, so it goes by snail mail to them and then they approve you. Once they elect to treat you as an S corp, there's some really interesting things that happen to that LLC. Legally, it's still the same. What, what state are you in, Lindsay? I am in Oregon, and that is exactly how I do mine. Right. So you're in Oregon, so you set up a LLC in Oregon. Then you file with the IRS, and you say, I want to be an S-Corp. It's still an Oregon LLC. Um, your tax treatment will probably be different in the state now, too. They'll treat you like an S-Corp, and they may have special rules for that. But then what happens is, is you get a couple benefits from that. One is um, you can pay yourself a payroll. And paying yourself on a W-2 is really helpful in this day and age for getting credit. So if you want to buy a car and you say you're self-employed, the guy's eyes roll when you because he's got to figure out getting you a loan. But if you just can hand him a W-2 or a pay stub, he doesn't ask whether you own the company or not. He just gets you the car loan. So that's one important part. The other thing is the way that uh, S-Corp is designed is... Um, the dividend that gets paid out of the company doesn't have to have any self-employment tax applied to it. So um, in the for some easy math, let's say that we had $100,000 of profit in either a sole proprietor or an LLC, you're going to have to pay 15.8% self-employment tax on that profit. Once you become an S-Corp, uh, what we do in our design is we take fifty per, that $100,000, we would split it, and we would pay you $50,000 on a W-2, and we take the other $50,000 as a dividend. Now, on the W-2, you do pay the self-employment tax. It comes out weird because part of it's the employer pays it, and part of it the employee pays, but it's the same number. That other part that comes out you and we're saying fifty thousand dollars. You just saved fifteen point eight percent of that. You don't have to pay that taxes on. That's totally legal. That's the way it's set up. That's the way President-elect Joe Biden runs his LLC and S corp. <laughs> so, did that answer your question? Yeah, I think that's great for people. Uh, so ten thousand dollars. Yeah, I, I, I think. Yeah. 
I think $10,000 profit is really the good spot to think about doing that because it's going to cost you about 150 bucks in most states. You know, some states are more, some are less. Um, and it's going to require you to do some extra work. There's going to be some extra expenses like running a payroll and doing a tax return for your company. Those are things you have to start figuring in. So in my view, you always want to be in a situation where when it's all said and done, there's some additional tax benefit beyond these extra expenses. That makes a lot of sense. That's It's useful to have sort of a rule of thumb attached to it because then you just sort of pin it in the back of your head. And then when you see that number show up, you're like, okay, it's time, it's yeah. time to research this. Start to look. Uh, all right. So this is sort of still on the same the, the topic of taxes, but um, it's potentially a pretty basic question. But we have I have to deal with it once a year, so I figured it might be useful. Uh, reasonably prolific authors tend to end up spending thousands of dollars a year on services that are provided by, often provided by individuals. Uh, Sometimes it's cover artists, sometimes editors. Those are usually the two big ones. Under what circumstances should you be generating a 1099? All right. This is a good one because this is one that, and it's going to come in the next few weeks, a lot of nonsense about 1099s. So, um, and probably the biggest area that you have to look at that is around the whole PayPal thing. So if your uh, subcontractors, you're paying them PayPal via an invoice, not friends and family, okay? So that means they're getting dinged for a fee. Um, then you don't have to worry about a 1099. That's going to be processed by PayPal. If you're paying them friends and family, or uh, I use Zelle or people use Venmo or any of these other types of things where you're trying to keep the transaction low and you're uh, paying them that way. If it goes over 400 bucks, you need to issue a 1099. Unless they're overseas. Okay. That was going to be my second half of my question. How is it handled yeah. with overseas stuff? Overseas is like it goes into the ghost pit. Um the other thing is sometimes you'll find that you're, it's always worth asking if your contractor has their own LLC and S Corp, because if they do, then they give you a W-9, you don't have to issue a 1099. Um, and as more and more, you know, I know a lot of cover designers now, they're getting to where they're making some pretty big money, maybe more than authors for a few of these guys. Um, you know, they're setting up that way, so they don't necessarily need to have 1099s if they give you a W-9. All right. So like, let's say the situation is you haven't paying them through PayPal and, and you've been doing it as an invoice or at least the, the version that gets dinged with with uh, fees. You can, can you still like write those off as expenses on your taxes? Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Excellent. Yeah. So if you're doing it that way, which is the 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 smoother way, because, if the, you know, the other way, if you're saving fees, that's great. But it's going to require you to then go back and go into your PayPal, tally that stuff up. Now to issue 1099s, um, I could probably provide you some links for services that do that. It's super cheap. It's less than $2 a 1099. Um, and with our clients, that's something we do. Um, whenever said and done, you know, maybe we have to issue on our really big clients, folks that are doing seven figures, we maybe have to issue 10. Now, some of those are some pretty big numbers. 
but it's not, it never is like you have to do 11099s. Okay, so my question is, um, what sorts of things should authors be deducting? And are there things they might want to stay away from? And then piggybacking on that, do these things change according to how successful the author is? Or will they always want to deduct or avoid something? No, that's a good question. Um, so here's the interesting thing. Um, if you're, depending on how aggressive you are with advertising and how much of that, uh, of that chews up your budget, putting that aside, there's really not, the authors that I've seen, really significant amount of expenses. Even folks that are spending a lot on covers, it's still not huge. So the interesting thing in my view is when you look at, you know, you have to think about when the IRS is looking at a business, They, it's not like they know these businesses intimately. They don't understand what kind of expense profile it should have. They just kind of go with general rules. So they're expecting most small businesses are going to have higher expenses than authors really have. So authors have the, the potential to be really aggressive in what they do with their expenses. So my, my take is always to, to do as much as you possibly can. Where you have to be careful is the things that don't make sense on the business. So you're a stay-at-home author that writes thousands and thousands of words a day. Writing off a vehicle is pretty tough because you're not, you don't need it for business, right? Um, meals and entertainment, you have to be careful with. Um, with our clients this year, one of the things that we've been sensitive to is like, hey, you can't have a lot of meals and entertainment and travel when everybody's in lockdown. That's probably something that would trigger Uncle Sam to look at your um, your, your return. So think about those kind of things. But where I think authors can be really aggressive is, you know, their their cell phones should be on there. Their um, you know for their home office, they should be picking up their cable and um, any kind of services to get into the house. Um, depend, you know, once you get into your home office, there's, there's really specific rules, right? So um, if you're an S Corp, you can't write off um, portions of your home. Um, there, there's some some nuances to how you deduct for your your space. You basically have to kind of like charge yourself rent. Um, the other part of it is, is depending on where your home is, if you own your home, deducting for a home office could jam you up on capital gains when you sell your house. If you're in a real high, uh, you know, place where your home's escalating in value really quickly and you're taking 10% of your house as your office, you, that means that you're going to have to pay that in capital gains tax. So that's something you got to think what you're trying to achieve overall. Conversely, if you're in a tiny apartment in New York and you're renting, you could probably take a lot of it as your home office deduction. So I, I, hate, I, I always hate to say it depends. I'd rather hear people's situation and say, um, what you can do. And I'll say this, um, the worst that can happen to you with the deduction is they say it's not deductible, which means whatever it was, you owe the tax on plus penalties. So for example, let's say 
I'm too lazy to separate out my phone bill because it's got my kids on it. Theoretically, if I did that and I got audited and it was a really good auditor who dug deep, he could say, hey, these two, phone, these two portions of the phone bill for all these years shouldn't have been deducted. I'm just going to write the check if I was to do that. Right? I'm not going to be worrying about pulling out their portion of a phone bill for it's just picking my battles. Yeah, this year was kind of a bummer because uh, I usually get to write off some travel and hotels for the <laughs> author conferences. And this year I'm like, oh man, <laughs> get nothing to write off for travel. Yeah. B besides, it just sucks being stuck at home. That was like, you know, most, most authors um, are pretty aggressive with their travel. And, um, you know, what we have our clients do is you journal when you're out, when you're on a vacation. And, you know, you guys, you, you don't stop writing, you know, you, you pretend like you're going on vacation, but you really don't. Right. And if you do, and you do actually get your batteries recharged, then guess what comes more story ideas and you have to capture them. So that kind of stuff can always be at least in some portion written off. But, you know, I, I know the conferences you go to and the stuff I go to all that stuff. Like if you're going to 20 books or Nink, that's all, all 100% deductible. The, the car you rent to get there, the, the travel meals while you're traveling, Ubers, room, fees, all that stuff. Right. Um, and I should ask for anybody that was lucky enough to maybe hit it big last year in 2020. And right now they're listening to this in the beginning of 2021. And they're like, shoot, I'm going to have to pay a ton in taxes. Are there any things that they can do now that can still save them on their 2020 taxes? Um, so there's, there's a couple things. One is the, there's the term cash and accrual basis. So all authors should be running their business on a cash basis. Most small businesses don't, but what that means is that you're going to account for sales when they come in the door. So first, uh, first and foremost, what happened in November and December sales are not 2020 sales. Those are 2020. They're going to fall in 2021 when you get that cash. Um, I would look at what you can do around retirement and SEP stuff to re if you're if if taxes are really a, a big issue that you're worried about. Um, the other thing to think about is this: is that, and let's say it was this, it was a like a windfall year. It was your first big breakout year. Um, you find yourself in a position where you're going to have to pay more taxes this year or, you know, in April for, for last year, once you pay taxes on that money, you don't have to pay taxes on it. Again, you can move it in and out of the business as capital, as long as you track it the right way. Um, the second thing I would say is more important is if you know that you're going to have another good year is before the 31st, get that LLC set up and get the, um, S Corp applied for. The, the IRS really wants to see the S Corp filing before the 31st. So this is like the perfect time if you're going to set up a company to set it up. Um, you know, go to your, and this is all stuff you can do online. You know, get, get your company set up, get its EIN, which is like a social security number for a company, and then apply for your S Corp. Now, this year, we had 
a couple that we set up and we still haven't heard if they're S-Corps yet because there's just been craziness with the IRS, people not there. And then we forget that the year before that, there was a government shutdown at this period of time. Right? That seems like 100 years ago. Um, you just do it and you can kind of get this stuff fixed later on by picking up the phone and, 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 you know, refiling that paperwork. But like with our clients, um, we're just going to go ahead and file as S corps and wait till they finally catch up to us. I know that was a long answer for. <laughs> no, it's good. And I actually feel like I probably should have said this at the beginning of the show, but obviously a lot of what we're talking about is me U S centric and, and people in different countries will have different systems to figure out how to work with. Absolutely. You know, most, I, I really focus on, on us companies. Um, as far as authors, some of the general business practices we talk about, as far as, conserving your cash and being focused on this as a business that's that's across the board the same the other stuff really gets to you know each country's you know tax laws and how they structure businesses all right well my next question kind of you alluded to it uh, when it comes to planning for retirement the options in the US are basically a Roth IRA, a SEP IRA, a solo 401k. And if you're a certain age and income level and want to sock away more, a defined benefit plan. Um, I was just wondering if you could kind of give us a lowdown on these options. I, I found it when I was first researching the SEP IRA and solo K, very confusing as to which was best. Uh, later found out solo K <laughs> was what worked with the LLC pretty well. But yeah, yeah. if you could talk about it, that'd be great. Sure. So um, the we'll talk about the Roth first um, because it's different because how a Roth works is um, you pay taxes on the money and then post-tax money goes into it and it grows tax-free. So the idea is, is that if you put $1,000 in it, that $1,000 plus any income it generates in investments is all going to be tax-free. Um, the others are going to be tools for us to tax defer, which means we're going to, at this time of year, we do this, we get to the end of the year, we look at the, 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 what the business is looking like and we say, okay, we want to reduce what the tax profile looks like and we want to make sure we get some chips off the table here. What are we going to put into retirement? And even though we make a decision now, we don't, we don't have to actually have that cash in that retirement fund until April 15th. So that's the other thing that's nice with an author business is if you're feeling a little cash poor now, but you you know you have the profit, you could and you're waiting for that big December payment, you might want to chunk a a lot of that December payment might be going to taxes into your <laughs> into your into your uh, retirement. So a SEP IRA is self-employment uh pension. Uh it's for a single person, I think, I, I don't know what the numbers are moved up to now, but it's about $56,000 a year to max it out. Um, it's really easy to set up and you can do that yourself through E-Trade and TD Waterhouse and all those places. Um, a solo 401k, which is the tool that I like to use, um, they're not as easy to find because that's a company plan. So you're, once you have a company set up, 
that company can have a 401k plan and it has rules and regulations and the amount you can invest the, the is um, the same as a SEP. But one of the real interesting features of, a, of most 401k plans is you can borrow money from them. And what that, now you can always take money out of a SEP, but there's going to be a penalty associated. But what's cool about a um, 401k is you can borrow money from yourself. Now there's rules, right? There's only so much you can borrow. You got to pay it back in five years and you got to pay interest, but you're paying yourself back interest. So you become your own bank. Um, you talked about defined benefit. There's some other stuff out there with whole life that you can do. You really have to be making a lot of money for those kind of plans to make sense. The one thing that I've run into, and this is a real high-class problem, is authors that are having to think about, well, what, what kind of money do I need before I get to a retirement age. Like, so it, 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 any money you put into a retirement program, you can't touch without some kind of penalty or loan or one of these things we're talking about until you're 55. Um, so if you're, if you're not, um, if you're going to need money before that, then you also need to have some kind of investments that are going to deal with that too, that, Yes, you may have to pay some taxes on, but you know that you're going to have that money to do the stuff you want to do. Um, I have found retirement is one of the hardest things to get authors to plan for and do because they can always think of something better to do with that money than actually put it away for a rainy day. Yeah, that's, that's, it's been on my mind a lot lately because I'm always like, we've got to start investing, we've got to start investing. My husband's like, yeah, but if we do this with the money, and I'm like, there's, there's always something to do. Um, it but always is. Yeah. Going off of that, basically. So at what point should authors start investing for retirement and how much should they be investing? And then also, does it depend on a full-time job, either theirs or a significant other that might be providing that 401k? So that's, that's a really interesting question. And I've, you know, I've run into a few authors that are making enough money that they, they could quit their day jobs, but they're a few years away from a full pension at AT&T or GE. It's like, why would you want to <laughs> give that up? Right? Like that's some serious money. So, um, they really haven't, um, you know, they're thinking that way, like, okay, the best way for me to maximize my returns for retirement is to put that time in at that job because then I'm going to have this big chunk. Um, so I would look at that when you're, you know, you're in a family situation where maybe uh, your partner has got a good job with um, uh, a great 401k plan. What you start to do is think about those pooled resources. Like, well, maybe more of this money's coming out for our day-to-day -day stuff from the author side and we're taking more of his salary and pushing it into that plan to maximize that benefit. Now, the other part I would say to this is the sooner you get started, especially for young authors, if you, you know, this is just like basic investment 101 is to be able to um, just put 
even a hundred bucks a year, if you're starting out that money in the market just does its thing. And the more you set that up as a system and this, my, my uncle taught me this when I was in high school, I was, he was a, one of these millionaire millionaire next door type guys just is really good at savings. Like you, you just from day one, take 5% of this and sock it away. You'll learn to live on what you have. And that money going in early grows so much faster. Um, so I, I really think that the sooner, e even if you just set up a SEP and you threw in a hundred bucks each year, that's going to pay off. Right. It may, and maybe only down the road, all it's able to do is cover one kid's tuition. And, <laughs> but like, it, it's kind of firing for that. Yeah, definitely good advice. Um, so I get emails a lot from readers who are curious about copyright and who should own them. So, uh, you know, we're talking about, first off, uh, under what circumstances should you even worry about registering a formal copyright? And assuming that if you have, for example, started a, a corporation of some kind, who should own the copyright, you or the corporation? Well, this is a great question. And um, so it's funny when you, Personally, I'm I'm not one that gets really hung up on piracy and that kind of stuff. I think that it can it it can really take a lot of effort away from working on your business. But no matter what, if you don't register your copyright, which I think is like forty five bucks now, I think they just raised the price. If you don't register your copyright, um, you can't bring it to court to do anything with it. Right. So if you think that there's, if you're the kind of person that really thinks that you want to make sure that you're going to protect yourself with copyright. Um, that's, that's the table stakes is that 45 bucks, right? Because you can't even bring it into federal court without that. Now, my view on it is a little bit different. I think it's important to file that copyright because Joe, if, if your books are going to be turning into some, you, you know, you're, you get a call and it's Amazon Studios and they want to make a movie out of your, your, your books. You coming to you and you having your intellectual property papered properly and, and done in a professional manner is going to get you respect and more money, right? And in the end, whatever rights that you're going to assign, some lawyer is going to want to look and see that there's a path from whatever assignment you've given him through to something that ties off to a record with the federal government, right? So it's really about this intellectual property and estate planning and that kind of stuff, getting that stuff registered. So now here's, what, here's where a company gets to be important again, because the company becomes your first line of defense in how you manage uh, your, your intellectual property. So if you have a company set up and an LLC and God forbid something happens to you, if in your operating, ag operating agreement, it says, Hey, here's the successor trustee and the rights that they have. They then have the rights to go into your Amazon accounts and do stuff because of how the business is set up, right? They can show Amazon, the operating agreement and say, see, I'm the successor trustee. I can, do these things. I can continue to post books. I can take things down. I can do whatever you need to do. 
if it's a sole proprietor and it's and it's a personal asset, then it gets really sticky. Thinking starting it up in things like probate, right? So how we paper this stuff is we want the copyright to be your personal asset. So Joe owns the copyright to book A. He then assigns the rights to that book to his company, Joe Lalo LLC, that has the rights to wheel and deal and do whatever it's going to do. So those rights are sitting in that company because holding on uh, copyright are are an interesting asset as a personal asset. They they last longer. Like you don't want to get a bunch of copyrights in your company name because a company doesn't hold on to copyrights as long as a human being does. Right? Uh, but a company can last longer than a human being and can manage them. Right? So that you, you, theoretically you could be in a situation where through your uh you know your your trust, if you set up a trust separate, you might divvy out the actual ownership of copyrights to your kit to three kids. But those rights are still assigned up into the the LLC and the LLC is running and managing everything um, for whatever period you set up in that assignment agreement. Now, when you get into that stuff, it gets even hairier because you have to get a lawyer in your particular state when you start dealing with this trust stuff. So it's not even like I can say, hey, I got this guy in Chicago that's great. He might be a good intellectual property attorney and can do the copyright and trademark stuff. But when it gets into setting up the trust around those assets, you got to go find a local um, attorney that's doing that stuff because that's all done usually at a county level. Matt, just sort of a quick follow-up. Does the timing on a copyright matter? Like, do you have to get one right away? Is there a penalty if you don't? So there's a thing called consequential damages, which is uh, basically if you violated my copyright and I can prove it, I can get even more money out of you if you have it. <laughs> um, you have to get it registered within 90 days of its first publication to get consequential damages. Now, if you've ever done this, you know that you kind of go on this website that feels like it's from the 90s. You fill a bunch of stuff out, and then magically two years later, a certificate shows up at your house. <laughs> so um, I've never had to do it where we've like expedited a copyright. You can pay more money and get it expedited, like if you were going to go to court over or something. But all that consequential damage would be considered off of you uh, when you filed and they issued you your review number. I've heard it recommended, and I'm curious what your opinion is, for authors who are rather prolific, that like maybe it's just enough to copyright the first book in the series. Do you have any thoughts on that? Um, I, first off, I know the dirty secret that very, very few people actually copyright anything. Right. <laughs> Until they're like, wait, my book's on the web from this other person in South yeah. America. Yeah. Um, so there's far more books not registered than are registered. Um, but I, I, I would, you know, again, I think it depends on what you're doing with your brand and where you're at. I completely understand that when you're early and you're, you're rapid releasing, 35 bucks 
is some serious money or 45 bucks now. So yeah, I would say certainly your first book and then, you know, hold off. It doesn't stop you, you from going back later and registering them all. You're just not going to be able to get that consequential damages, but that's so rare anyhow. Again, I think, you know, my view is, is like, what we want to do is, yeah, let's wait till we get some money and then go back and register them all so that we have really, and this is probably bit after you get your company set up and some other things going on. So we get some nice clean records. So like if some guy shows up that wants to um, option all your stuff, it's really clean, right? I, I think one of the things that all authors are going to face in, in the coming years is that there's going to be a demand for their, their content and they'll go into urban fantasy. And there's a lot of people that are pretty good at urban fantasy writers. And if you come at it with like a bunch of papers, like, Hey, here's my stuff. They're just going to go to the next guy. Right. Because they just, they know they have to have this stuff going through lawyers and they have to have contracts. And if, you know, your record keeping looks like a hobo's pocket, they're just not going to, they're going to move on to the next person. It's going to be easier. I could be wrong. All right. No, that's great advice. And I will, I have a virtual hobo's pocket, so uh, maybe I shouldn't confess that. <laughs> I like that expression though. <laughs> right. Like, <laughs> well, we wanted to also ask you some questions from your latest book. Oh, okay. So um, anybody that was skipping all the U.S. stuff because you didn't care, <laughs> now we're going to get into the, every, you know, for everything stuff. So could you kind of sum up, just remind people that the title was Advantage, Harnessing Cumulative Advantage in the Winner-Takes-All Publishing Market. Uh, just in case you're not watching the video and can't see the, the book behind you, <laughs> courtesy of Zoom's background. <laughs> So can you sum up what you mean by cumulative advantage as it applies in the author business? Sure. So, um, and to put this in context, um, since I got involved with authors back in 2016, we've got uh, 14 authors we work with. All are doing mid-six figures and seven figures. And when looking across these authors, we go across all genres. Um and they're very different in how they're going to market. In fact, a lot of their stuff is contradictory, right? So I'm in the back seeing all their operations are going and this person saying it's all about Amazon ads, this one saying it's all about Facebook ads, this guy's doing neither and doing better than the other two. I'm worried, should I be telling this guy to do ads? And it drove me to start understand, to dig in and understand what, what is common in all of their success. And one of the first things that um, I was able to kind of get out of the research is, is that uh, the publishing market is not like markets that they taught you about in economics 101, right? This isn't supply and demand meet at a point and established price. Because if that was the case, all books would be equally priced in a particular genre, and probably everybody that writes would be broke. The reality is, is that less than 2% of, of, of the authors that publish make 60% of all the revenue. So why is that? What's driving it? And uh, that this whole book was, for me, was like this discovery process of understanding, like, 
how these different market forces are are picking winners and losers and, and establishing some authors is just continually growing their business um, and understanding how any author can start to adopt some of these strategies to make you go with the flow. Um, and really what it boils down to is this exists in any market where um, what happens in this current round of play, air quotes, uh, the resources you collect now, you can then use to your advantage in future rounds. And in publishing specifically, if we really want to simplify it, that is your audience. So the audience that you call, that you start to form early helps you grow round after round after round. The audience and then the income from the books too, because I I started with like $200 trying to get my first cover and had it done. And <laughs> people don't realize that. They're like, that person spends so much on ads. And it's like, well, yeah, because you've had like six successful series at this point. And each time you can put a little more into the launch than you could back in the day. Exactly. That's, and it's not just the, it's to your point, it's not just those at, it's not just the people, it's the other assets you get, the cash. And, and what I always, I always use as an example is, is the game Monopoly. So like, um, my family's some pretty serious Monopoly players. So, um, and my, my wife's from Portland. So we go to, uh, the coast every summer. We have the hardcore Monopoly games, children cry. It's, but when you first look at a Monopoly game, you, you know, you think, oh, I want to get Park Place. I want to get um, all these expensive properties. That's not how you win the game in Monopoly. The way that you win at Monopoly is you understand that in those early rounds, um, you're using uh, your money in exchange for properties. Well, a lot of it's driven by luck, which properties you land on but you're making trade-offs in your cash to get different assets so that you can then either pull together, you know, more, more power in later rounds or be able to wheel and deal. Right. And once you start to understand how the game works, you don't want park place. You don't want the green properties. What you want is you want the orange and the red properties, because when you look at the dynamics of the game, people are coming out of the jail spot the most often. And the most often numbers rolled are six, seven, and eight on a two and two six-sided dice. So they're going to land on St. James Place, and they're going to land in those places. So you and those are cheaper to develop. So when you start to understand how the game is played, it seems like you're getting luckier, but you're not. You're just making better decisions in, uh, and then that tilts the probabilities your way. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. Definitely. <laughs> and Monopoly was a great game. I love that one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. So uh, in the book, you talk a bit about long, well, you took a fair amount about long tail earnings. And uh, at one point, you even suggest it might be valuable if you're running ads to pause the ads uh, long enough to get an idea of what your actual baseline long tail earnings are. So you talk a little bit, could you talk a little bit about like why your long tail earnings are most important and like just that sort of topic? Sure. So... And, and uh, when I'm talking about this, I kind of get into the whole idea of um, the cliff, right? There's a lot of people talk about this mythological cliff, and it, I, a lot of folks I hear talk about it, they attribute it to something that's happening within the algorithms at 
Amazon that, you know, through this visibility that things drop off at a particular period of time. And I started to, the tales that I'm, we're talking about specifically, isn't the Anderson long tail article written in Wired, like back in 2007. What I'm talking about is with all my clients, I, and I do this with gross dollar sales on a monthly basis, I plot their titles. And what you see, and I've done this with thousands of titles, I've got some prolific authors across every genre you can think of. Everybody has this really steep curve that drops off and it drops off over a 90 day period. And then it levels off. And my thesis is, is that what's creating that burst is your audience that you've already got. That's your cumulative advantage. These people that you've got pent up, they're waiting for your next book. That book comes out, boom, they consume it like a Netflix series. Now that does give you um, visibility, right? Because of the number of people, like if I've got an audience, like a, a you know a high selling romance order, I author, I push up higher. But then what I want to see when I'm looking at your business is I want to see where things tail off and what happens with the long tail. And what I do is I average them all in together so I can see it all in one bit. And to your point, if we can do it where we take advertising out, we can understand what's really going on with your business and get a true baseline. Because what I found is there's no correlation between advertising and sales. There's this is no all very fascinating. <laughs> not, not. So you have to ask, somebody has to follow up. What do you mean there's no correlation <laughs> between advertising and sales? <laughs> um, so in looking at, so let me put it, let me rephrase that one. The only client that I had that had any correlation of advertising to sales, it was because she was ratcheting up her her spend on advertising in an exact proportion to her overall sales, right? So it was like, wow, it's like 20% the whole way up. But if you went and looked at any specific title and what she was spending on that, there was no correlation that you could see in that uh, that was repeatable that if I spent this much, I would get this this much boost, right? And you also remember some of my clients, these are folks that are getting in the top 20 of the store. So they're not afraid to spend money on ads, right? They're, they're 60,000 bucks a month, let's do it, right? But when you get up into that level, it's not like you can just put more money and move because the difference between the seven slot and the six slot, now you got to sell 600 more books. Okay, this is not going to happen. Um, so it forced me to go and look and and strip out and look at everybody's advertising. And I, and in fact, <laughs> one client who's uh, had a negative correlation, right? So, <laughs> um, but my my point is is that um, it, it has more a correlation to uh, your audience, your audience size and your audience response to how you release books. That's something that we can repeat. Um, advertising, it, it just, it isn't repeatable. 
and what you know after i finally got through all this and got with this book and i started showing it to my clients it got them to trust and they stopped advertising um and a lot of my clients their their new releases um they're doing very very little advertising if any advertising at all which makes you a lot more profitable which makes me kind of panic because I'm like, I actually, I mean, I do make money on my ads, you know, at least it looks like it from <laughs> my side. Mm-hmm. And I'm uh, not saying it doesn't have some effect. I just would, you know, back to kind of Joe's question is, is, um, you know, if you did that, if you went cold Turkey, um, what I would, ex- what I would expect to see is that, your business would be more profitable. Yes, your top line would drop, but what you saved in ads would make you more profitable. So the business from a cash flow perspective would be far more profitable. From a sales perspective, you wouldn't be as as you know as high in sales. But I, I'm about the cash flow. So that's what I focus on. And I believe that if you're in this for the long game, that um we can then redeploy that money into your audience and get better results. So now see, I've got a series where I constantly keep a $5 Facebook ad running to it. And, um, um, it's not my high, highest making series, but when I've got a Facebook ad running to it, I'm making about 800 to $900 a month on it for $150 a month. When I drop that ad, my earnings dropped to about $300 a month. So I'm like, it's still, you know, I mean, that ad does help that, that, that series. For sure. Yeah. And that's, and, and that's an older, older series. Oh yeah. No, it's, it's my first series. So, <laughs> right. right. Okay. So let, let's put this into context. So yeah, a lot of my clients, that's where their ad spend is going is when they got a series that's long in the tooth. Right. And you, you look at that from a return on investment perspective, if it's made a bunch of money back, when you wrote it a few years ago and to throw 150 into it a month to get that kind of lift, that's perfect. But I bet there's months where you come out with a new release in another series and that series does even better because people recognize, Oh, look at, you've got a backlist. I'm going to read all your stuff now. Yep. And that's the stuff that is that's cumulative advantage work. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That, that makes sense. Okay. So right off the bat, um, in advantage, um, you tell readers, you'll show them how to separate themselves from the pack of those seeking the next hack or marketing gimmick. Um, would you give one example of what listeners can, can do to separate themselves? Sure. So this is I mean, kind of a long answer, but it's, it's the kind of the, the secret to this whole thing that I think is amazing. Um, and to put into context, you know, I believe that publishing adopted digital marketing techniques because they were so effective and with traditional publishing eating its own young and not knowing what was going on where was an indie author supposed to go how are they supposed to figure this stuff out so they looked at what was working um some of the stuff is super old school i mean it goes back to you know sales letters that guys used to write in the 50s it works um but what the problem is is that with information moving so quickly, everyone adopts it and then it loses its efficacy. And that gets into that whole vicious marketing cycle that I talk about where you're constantly looking for the next gimmick and hack. So now we talk about authors. 
one of the things that I think is just like marketers would give their left arm for this. So if you're a fiction writer, your reader puts themselves in a hypnotic trance when they read. They're in a, they're in a, they're in a trans state while they're reading. That's where they want to be. In fact, if you knock them out with bad grammar or some of the things we see, they'll write a bad review about it. Like it took me out of the story, right? We've seen that. When they're in that state, they are connecting with your characters in your story world. And whether through your own purpose or um, accidentally the, the, the holes that you leave in the story, they fill in with their memories and associations. This is deep-seated stuff that's connected to their lizard brain. We're like, we're, your, your character after they read that story is burnt into their neurons. It's physically now present in other human beings' heads. We have this deep, deep connection, which we can see on functional MRIs when people think about your characters. They, 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 they show up in association places in your brain, like, like you know, friends. We don't use that in our marketing. You have somebody that's reading a story, they get to the end, and you go into full carnival barker and start like, hey, join my Facebook group, get on my mailing list. Here's my next 62 books I want you to buy, right? Like we go into all this stuff that's like, and, and the question I would have for you as somebody who's probably a pretty big reader, is that how you want to be treated? Is that how you want to be seen as like a transaction? And that's where I get to like, what is it I can do to help you separate from the pack? It's just, you create your own pack around your brand identity, right? I'm sure if you're a reader, you have some part of your personal identity that's connected with a fictional character, whether it's Luke Skywalker, somebody in Games of Thrones, the Godfather, it's part of your identity, right? That's what we want to do as an author. That's what we want our marketing to be about, because then we can use community around that to create this bubble that's really committed, right? And this is the other part of it. And this gets my idea around this virtuous marketing circle or cycle. What happens is we go to sell the next book. I'm going to sell more books versus, hey, my audience bought a bunch of books. While my book was getting visibility, some new people came in. What did I do to secure those new people that onboarded to, to know that they're part of this community and need to stick around and be part of this? And this isn't an author thing. This is like all business is like, we don't care about our existing customers until we lose them, right? I, I just want all the customers I don't have. That's all. So that, that's where I think you, if you can start thinking about, and this is why it's different for everybody because it's built on your story world. If you can take your stories and you can start to think about how you can use your characters to onboard somebody onto your newsletter versus you, right? Not have that standard, hey, here's my, you know, get my free book, do this. But like, how do you ease somebody right from one story to the next with your characters who they have a deep relationship with? That's something that only you can do. And it's going to work with the people that resonate with your brand. 
Yeah, I've definitely found that the most, like the way to get people to flock to the newsletter is when I'm like at the end of book eight, like, oh, if you want to see like a sec- second epilogue or another short story with these two characters that you were super into in the story and they sign up in droves, I make it exclusive. So they have to get on the newsletter and I get all these emails, like if something went wrong with the form and they couldn't get on or they went in their spam folder. So I was like, <laughs> I know this is working and it's hard. You get to the point where you're like, oh, it's easier just to put money on ads. But I always have to remind myself, no, the thing that people will want the most is another is like a free short story with these characters they already love. And like yeah. I said, they feel like they're friends. Well, when I was doing the research on that book and you see how like these people care more about these characters than like family members. <laughs> um, and when you start to see that and you, you know, you think about how that perpetuates. And then, you know, probably the purest form of cumulative advantage you can see today is, you know, in the Harry Potter world, we're now at this, and, and you could say the same thing with um, Tolkien, uh, you know, how, how is that going into next generations that we're literally like reading them to our kids and making our, and indoctrinating our kids into the idea of these being good books. And um, that's, that's because you know, and Disney's whole value is built on that, right? Um, they 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 figured that out decades ago. That you know, we bring these movies out, and the the, the parents are going to bring their kids into these, so that they can not only they, they hope the kids going to have the same experience they had, but that then they get to have a new experience of their kid doing it. It's like, why do we make kids believe in Santa Claus? It's it's. <laughs> It's because we want to have that experience. All right. I think we each have one more question for you. We've mm-hmm. kept you for about an hour. You you already mentioned this, basically, the virtuous marketing cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just wondering if you could explain that a little bit more. Sure. So the, the idea behind that is rather than us um, looking at building transactional funnels where it's all about like, you know, you come in and you're going to buy or I'm going to exit you out or these things you see where it's, it's an engine where they, I might have you like float around a little bit, but in the end, I'm just trying to get, I'm trying to close you at some point. And I'm not saying we don't want to have transactions, but instead think about how your system is set up. Um, so that when you go through this cycle, right? So we have this initial period where you're going to, your, your, your book's going to get its burst onto the scene, your new book. You're going to consume your existing audience. At the end of that cycle, those new fans that you've attracted, you need to have a system so you don't lose them, right? And this isn't about like, I just want to sell you more stuff. It's like, you need to make them feel comfortable and welcome them and get them to understand what your brand is about and what the community is about so that they want to be part of this thing. And... First step, read through all your old stuff if they're new and then be ready for that next round when you're going to do that. And when you start to think about that, it becomes this cycle where you're not focusing on trying to transact. You're trying to focus on things that are fun and inclusive and hit these human needs that people have. And oh, by the way, people buy stuff all the way along the process um, because they want to. Like if you've ever been to a concert of your favorite band, 
band and bought one of those super expensive concert t-shirts, right? That's part of being a community. It's part of a badge in my identity, right? I didn't need to pay $80 for a crappy t-shirt. <laughs> All right. Um, so anyone who's done any advertising or promoting uh, sort of is, is aware that some, pro some promos work fantastically uh, at the beginning. And then either because you've exhausted the audience that it reaches or because everyone has started doing the same marketing tactic, it starts to get diminishing returns and you start to look at other promotional tactics. And you say that the stuff you're talking about in this book is sort of immune to that. Um, so can you sort of explain how? Yeah. So, um, well, you know, the, the real eye opener to me was the first off seeing that we could just pull back on advertising and get better launches than we ever had. Right. That it, it wasn't, it wasn't some magical Facebook ad. It was just, these people were writing good books that their fans were waiting for. Um, the next thing was, is taking some of that money and uh, using it for direct marketing to fans. So um, giving, making the launch an exciting celebration where they're getting stuff that's relevant to them as fans. And this isn't like gift cards and Kindles and junk like that. This is like on-brand stuff for your story world because that's what they care about, right? Um, what we saw was is we could scale the business up with less money while at the same time we're seeing folks, you know, especially this last year with running ads was just a horror show. Um what things were costing. And I, I believe that um, it's not going to get better. Um, the combination of more and more authors trying to use things like advertising to get into that 2%. It's just not going to happen, right? Like the, the worst thing we can have is a million authors spending $5 a day, right? That lets there. Th especially if they're advertising crappy books, like that's just going to dilute everybody's advertising. And I, I, I don't, I don't see how that's going to stop. You know, yes, this round of people will die off because they run out of money, but there'll be another round of people prepared to spend $5 a day for the next 90 days. And then another, and another. So, um, and did that answer the question? Yeah. I think, I think that, that, that sort of sums it up. Yeah. Okay, so um, uh, in your book, Treat Your Writing Like a Business, you talk about exit strategy. And this is something that's really fascinating to me. And I know our listeners are fascinated with it as well. And what you mean by that is basically leaving the day job. So mm -hmm. would you tell us how an author can know they're ready to quit, um, what they need to have in place, and how much money should they be making compared to their day job? Yeah, so... Um... And again, this this is all relative to what your your current living situation is and what you're doing, right? Um, the biggest thing you can do it, there, there's two pieces to this, in in my view. One is um, ramping down your expenses, your personal expenses, and and I I think it's it's kind of a natural thing because most authors once they quit. Their their day job, all they do is sit home and write anyhow, so they don't really have much life to spend money on. <laughs> but um, what we're trying to do is we're trying to create this runway for you to be
be able to um, get the books to be providing the cash flow. And inherent to this whole thing is you've got a, a built-in two-month cash flow cycle where, you know, if you, even if you sold $100,000 of books today, you don't get that money for 60 days. So you, you always have to remember there's, there's that 60-day deal in there. So in my view, you need to look at um, having at least three months of your whatever your living expenses are socked away. Um, and you have to have your, your financial footprint shrunk down as much as you possibly can. And, and this is kind of figuring that you're the person that's kind of going to be the main breadwinner. Um, and I think that the, 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 the production perspective for the author has to be is, you know, you know, your books are selling, like you've had some decent um, launches where you've made some, some good money in those first 90 days. Like that's the thing that everyone has to understand is, is like there's, even if you look at um, JK Rowling's, you know, she had a 90 day peak 20 years ago. That was gazillion dollars. Yeah. It's, it's still, it's still above most people's peak now her tail, but it's a tail compared to that. Everyone has that same thing. You have to be in a position where you know that, what your tail looks like, and let's say you've got 20 books, write this down, that that is um, got at least equal to what you were doing for your month-to-month expenses. Because in my view, at that point, you are in a situation where once you have that free time, you can start ramping up more books and building up that back uh, backlist, right? Because you... I've got authors that try to do it, to try and live on the peaks. And at some point you just burn out, your risks give out, your brain gives out, something gives out and you're going to fall down to your tail. And that's, what's got to maintain things. Now, let me just add on to that. There may be some people that are because of the joys of COVID. This is now when they're going to have to be, make a living writing, Right. Like if you find out you just lost your job, what do you do? Um, and if you're really serious about this being your full-time gig, you have to treat it that way, right? I mean, it, I've just found for myself personally, when I split myself, like if I'm trying to look for a job and I'm trying to write a book, it's you're not, you're not doing either well. So in my view, it's like, what can you do to ha- get the cash runway to get through this thing? to get your books up and going. Um, And we've already talked about um, the 401k piece early on. Let's say you you have a decent 401k at your company and they just canned you. Even though you're not ready to set up a company, one thing you could do is you could quickly set up an LLC, put in a 401, a solo 401k plan, move your old 401k into it and then take a loan out. So now you got some more cash to get through this. Does that make sense? Um, Depending on the size of it, it's either 10% or up to 50K depending on the size. So that's one thing. The other thing is if you had 
an existing author business. That doesn't necessarily mean it was a company. It could be a sole proprietorship. But if you can show on past tax returns where you were making money from your um, author business, um, you can go and get PPP money. Um, and I, uh, and I've known a lot of authors that have done that. And this, the next round is just opening up. If you haven't applied, you can apply. That's an opportunity. It's, it's all relative to what you were earning in 2019. So it might not be a lot of money, but it's something. Um, and for those that may have had, um, a business that was, um, a little more significant and running for a while, there's also the, um, I'm making sure I get the letters right on this, the Economic Impact Disaster Loan, which is through the SBA. And that's another low interest loan that you potentially, but in all, both those cases, that business had to be existing before September, 2015. Uh, excuse me, September, ugh, February 15th, 2020. And it doesn't have to be a company per se. It does have to have top line sales. So like if you're an author that's written a bunch of books and never sold anything, you're still out of luck. But if you, you know, you had even $5,000 sales, you could, you could see if you could get some money. So my, my question, just kind of just wanting to clarify. So like, Cause you know, when somebody has a full-time job, they're getting benefits. And so they're not making exactly what their check says they're making. They're making more than that technically. So how right. will an author know like their, their income needs to be enough to cover medical expenses, right? I mean, how do they? Oh yeah. So, and that's something I get into the book and how to kind of figure that out because that's a huge, and everyone's situation there is different, right? Like if you've got medical issues and you got a big family, that could be $20,000, right? Um, now, I've seen a few authors that have done this and they were able to get in the healthcare marketplace, um, you know, subsidies so that there was kind of this uh, cost subsidy on that. But where it gets them is that yet year that they start making money as an author, and they don't qualify for the subsidies anymore. It's like all of a sudden, it's like, well, why am I making less? I just went to six figures. It's like, yeah, but now Uncle Sam's not picking up your insurance. So you have to keep that um, in, in line. There is uh, some companies that you can use to get uh, ins insurance. Um, basically where you, you can kind of wholesale insurance through them. Um, but again, it's it's expensive. Um, if you're young and you don't have kids, then it's not a big deal. I am neither of those things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Like I'm paying a lot of money for really crappy insurance. Yeah, it's. <laughs> <laughs> I've got three but, kids. Not quite yeah. so many, but. <laughs> <laughs> but but it's it's one of those things that. Um, as an employee, you don't realize how much money that costs. So uh, in a business I had years ago, um, after our payroll, our health insurance was the most expensive thing. We we're paying $100,000 a year. And every year our insurance agent would come in and say, hey, it's only going up 12% this year, right? It was crazy. 
and we would change stuff and our employees would get more and more unhappy <laughs> because it was, it was crappier and crappier insurance. And, and, we, and, and it, all of a sudden it wasn't like a benefit anymore. It was like this evil necessity in the business. So, um, yeah, I, I don't want to go too far into that because then it starts to get political. Okay. So how much emphasis should be placed on diversifying income when people, authors quit their jobs? And that probably should happen before they quit their day job. I'm assuming. <laughs> well, when you say diversifying income, what do you mean? So like, I mean, audiobooks, Kindle limited, limited versus wide, um, print, things like that. And other forms of income too, maybe a YouTube channel. I don't know. Just what are your thoughts on it, on all of it? Um, well, again, I think that you have to focus when you're starting that business on building your core audience and depending on your genre and where it's easiest, that may start in something like KU. I know that starts to feel like a lobster trap for folks. Um, any of these other things start to cost money, but you have to look at the genre you're writing in. So for example, if, if you're writing lit RPG, um, you better be socking away some of your money you're making to go do audiobooks because that market's 10x what the reader market is, right? So it'd be the kind of thing where it's like, you're going to make a better business decision, socking away that money and going to get an audiobook made than you would advertising your ebooks, right? Which means patience, but long term long run, it's going to grow your business faster. I think some of the other things, and I spent a lot of time looking at, um, you know, other product sales, Kickstarters, those kind of things. Um, I do think authors need to look at direct sales. I think some of the tools that are coming into play for that, like right now, um, I'm, I've sold more audiobooks direct using BookFunnel then I covered all my audiobook fees. I'm still waiting for it to be on Amazon. You know, we'll say a prayer after this and see if we can get it to move up a couple of weeks. But, um, but that's the kind of thing I think that when you start to, that gets to be like um, how indie publishing worked, right? Is because indie publishing cut out middlemen you didn't need to make as you didn't need to sell as many books. You could make money in these little weird niches. Well, when you go to direct selling now, your your cash flow cycle shrinks to a couple of days, and you get bigger margins. So yeah, you don't sell as much. You don't rank like you could on another platform. But if you're doing this thing where you're connecting with your audience, then they're gonna they want to buy it from you. Yeah, I think if people do do Kindle Unlimited and they make that choice, and we're kind of agnostic on here, we, we experiment both ways. As long as they're getting people on their email list, you know, and making the true fans that you're talking mm -hmm. about, you know, even if something goes belly up with Kindle Unlimited, they can probably direct people to their website and make it work. Yeah, I, so, um, and I know we're probably going to wrap up here, but I think Kindle Unlimited is one of those things where it's it's just another audience, Right. So you, when you're starting to think about, like you write science fiction, you've got science fiction readers that are probably in Kindle Unlimited. You've got some that are wide, and then you've got some that are audiobook readers. Some of them cross all three. Some of them are never going to cross. Um, and that the thing that I always think about now is like, 
and and you guys have been around a while in this industry, so you've you can attest to this. Like the industry's changing faster. How it's changing is getting harder to predict. What impacts things are going to have um, seem to be bigger. What can you do that makes your business durable and sustainable? Uh, Nassim Tlaib's idea of anti-fragile. My belief is it's focus on the audience. That's where the money comes from. It doesn't come from Amazon. It doesn't come from Audible. It doesn't come from Disney. It comes from human beings that want to spend money in your story world. And the closer you can get to them, the easier it's going to be for you to transition to whatever that next whatever is going to be. And um, I think you, all you have to do is look at what Disney's done with Disney+. Plus. They've been working on 10 years to get themselves unwound from contracts so they could go direct with their customers and get away from cable companies. Yeah, they've actually had a pretty good year as far as the stock because they were like, well, we're all closed, but we got the Mandalorian right here. <laughs> it, Disney Plus saved them, right? Their stock went up. I mean, it's crazy to think about that, what their overheads are with however many parks are closed, right? This is a company that two years ago was selling $3 million a month in lightsabers at the Galaxy's Edge Park, right? Like, So like this is, you got to think about that as an author and, and an owner of an intellectual property is that um, that's the world we live in. It's all, there's, there's just too many meta trends that are showing us that uh, the, the, the stuff that you guys come up with is of value to others and they're prepared to pay for it in a bunch of different ways. I believe, and that's what this whole cumulative advantage thing is about is understanding how you can get that audience to build around your brand no matter where you move it, right? Well, awesome. This has been a really good talk. I hope, because we've been getting questions like, can you get somebody, can you talk about business and taxes? And I'm like, <laughs> we're not going to talk about that. We'll, we'll get Joe Solari on the show to talk about that. <laughs> and I'm more than happy to come on. You know, I, I, I think we covered it earlier on, like that before March 31st, if you're in that position where you need to set up a company, you need to carve out the time to do that because it's, this time next year, that could be a $15,000 decision. All right. And for anybody who's curious, are you taking clients right now? Uh, we are. Um, so a couple ways you can work with us. Um, there, If you go to my website, and part of this is this whole thing that I've kind of discovered with the cumulative advantage thing and how I'm trying to build my audience it's really hard to sign. I, I don't just get people on a mailing list. Like everything's organic with me. Um, there is ways to, if you go on my website, there's a lot of free resources for you to understand these concepts I've talked about. Once you get to a point where you, you're starting to make some decisions, there's the opportunity to buy some books. So like treat your writing like a business. If you buy that book, which I only sell direct, it comes with a course which is a lot of the stuff we talked about, just the basics. And then there's adders that you can buy on that. And I've designed it in a way based on where you're, you're at with your income level. So like we talked about this 10,000 level. I don't want anybody to buy any of my courses until they are got $10,000 in profit or more, right? As far as working with us on a private basis, 
um, that that's, we, we would talk to you myself and Lisa and kind of get an understanding of your business. Um, you really need to be, if you're a single author writing your own books, about $150,000. If you're publishing other people, you need to be double that. You know, that's the other thing to keep in mind. These people are running around saying they're making a bunch of money and it's all co-written and, uh, they're not making as much money. So they can't as afford as much in expenses, <laughs> especially if they're advertising a lot. And we found out the hard way. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I think some people that do that just enjoy, they love the collaborating. And then there's the others of us that are just like, I want to be alone in my room and do my thing. You know, we've got clients that are, um, they're really good at it and love it. I mean, you know, one of our clients is Chris Kennedy and he's probably one of the best collaborators in shared world that I know. Um, and his whole business is fan driven in a crazy way. Like he, his fan club is owned by his fans, literally owned by his fans. Um, but it's a business and you're a publishing company. And just because you're indie doesn't mean you don't deal with all of the vagaries of publishing and <laughs> deadlines and people flaking off. And, and I, I think that that's, that's the hard part is a lot of folks that get into this, they didn't like the business stuff, let alone the management part. And when you have to start managing, you know, subcontractors and flaky authors, it's, it kills a lot of joy. <laughs> well, thank you so much for answering our questions this evening. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to plug? Uh, the new book, Advantage, anything? <laughs> yeah, so uh, it's on it's on every platform out there. I, I have it as an audio book. And um, if you go to um, uh, joesolari.com uh, backslash DS audio, that's where you can buy the, the audio book direct. And I'm doing that um, using the book funnel delivery system. So I, I I was talking to Damon the other day, and I think that this is this may be one of the things that really turns the industry on its head is the ability for authors to do audiobooks direct. Um, it's super simple, and um, you know the money that can be made in audiobooks. You know, I can, you can sell an audiobook for less than a credit on Audible Direct and make 98% of the profit and get paid in two working days. Yeah, I think with ebooks, a lot of people are like, yeah, 70% I'm doing okay. But if you're non-exclusive with ACX and only getting 25% of what might be just the credit, not the yep. <laughs> 30 bucks or whatever, it becomes more worth it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you got all these shenanigans with, you know, uh, I was looking at my reports and a bunch of credits and rebates and it's just, yeah, you don't know what you're to expect. And so I, I think that, um, you know, if you're into audiobooks, that's the way. If you want to just get the ebook or the print, it's on all the platforms at this point. I, I do all my books wide so that I can sell direct. Um, but yeah, and I'm around. And the other thing I think is important is um, I, I've been doing this since I got involved in this. If you go on my website, you go to Joe Solari backslash contact. I've got slots open for like 20 minutes. You can sign up for a time cost you nothing. And, uh, we can just talk about your business. You ask me questions. Um, 
I just, I love learning more about what people are doing. And I've literally had it where I've talked to people, uh, one year and they're just putting out some books and 12 months later, they're like, I'm ready to hire you. Now that's not everybody, but, um, I, I'm, I can't pick winners and losers in this. So I just want to make sure I'm helping everybody along the way. All right. Well, great. I will put the links to that you mentioned in the show notes for your audiobook, and um, you got a YouTube channel too. I was checking out, so I put yep. links for everything. This is episode seventy-four, uh, sixfigureauthors.com with the number six. If you guys want to come by, get the links or leave a comment. And um, guess that's it. Thank you to Joshua Pearson for producing the show, and thank you Joe Zolari for coming on the show. This was uh, a lovely evening. I can't wait till we do it face to face. Yeah. Hopefully this year, 20 books by yeah. November, hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Bye, everyone. All right. Bye. See you all. So long, everybody. <laughs>